Today is Wednesday, June the 21st, 2023. Summer Solstice 2023, the first day of summer. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Sir Paul McCartney says artificial intelligence enabled a final Beatles song. The Beatles previously cleaned up John Lennon's demos to create new songs, Free as a Bird and Real Love. Sir Paul McCartney says he has employed artificial intelligence to help create what he calls the final Beatles record. He told BBC Record Force Today's program the technology had been used to extricate John Lennon's voice from an old demo so he could complete the song. We just finished it up, and it'll be released sometime this year, he explained. Sir Paul did not name the song, but it is likely to be a 1978 Lennon composition called Now and Then. It had already been considered as a possible reunion song for the Beatles in 1995 as they were compiling their career-spanning anthology series. Sir Paul had received a demo a year earlier from Lennon's widow, Yoko Ono. It was one of several songs on a cassette labeled for Paul that Lennon had made shortly before his death in 1980. Lo-fi and embryonic, the tracks were largely recorded onto a boombox as the musician sat at a piano in his New York apartment. Lennon wrote now and then during his retirement era when he had no record contract and was busy raising his son, Sean. Cleaned up by producer Jeff Lynn, two of those songs, Free as a Bird and Real Love, were completed and released in 1995 and 1996, marking the Beatles' first new material in 25 years. The band also attempted to record Now and Then, an apologetic love song that was fairly typical of Lennon's later career. But the session was quickly abandoned. It was one day, one afternoon, really messing with it, Lynn recalled. The song had a chorus, but it is almost totally lacking in verses. We did the backing track, a rough go that we really didn't finish. Sir Paul later claimed George Harrison refused to work on the song, saying the sound quality of Lennon's vocal was rubbish. It didn't have a very good title. It needed a bit of reworking, but it had a beautiful verse, and it had John singing it as he told Q Magazine. But George didn't like it, and the Beatles being a democracy... We didn't do it. The three remaining Beatles, that's Ringo Starr, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison, re-entered the recording studio in 1995. There were also said to have been technical issues with the original recording, which featured a persistent buzz from the electricity circuits in Lennon's apartment. In 2009, a new version of the demo, without the background noise, was released on a bootleg CD. Fans had speculated that this recording may not have been available in 1995, suggesting that it was stolen from his apartment along with other personal effects after his death. In the intervening years, Sir Paul has repeatedly talked about his desire to finish the song. That one still lingering around, he told a BBC4 documentary on Jeff Lynne in 2012. So I'm going to nick in with Jeff and do it. Finish it one of these days. It would seem that technology has now afforded the musician a chance to achieve that goal. The turning point came with Peter Jackson's Get Back documentary, where dialogue editor Emil Delaray trained computers to recognize the Beatles' voices and separate them from background noises and even their own instruments to create clean audio. The same process allowed Sir Ports to duet with Lennon on his recent tour, and for new surround sound mixes of the Beatles' Revolver album to be created last year. He, that is Jackson, was able to extricate John's voice from a ropey little bit of cassette. Sir Paul 
told Radio 4's Martha Kearney we had John's voice and a piano, and he could separate them with artificial intelligence. They tell the machine, that's the voice. This is a guitar. Lose the guitar. So when we came to make what will be the last Beatles record, it was a demo that John had, and we were able to take John's voice and get it pure enough through this artificial intelligence. Then we can mix the record as you would normally do, so it gives you some sort of leeway. However, the musician admitted that other applications of artificial intelligence gave him cause for concern. I'm not on the internet that much, but people will say to me, oh yeah, there's a track with John singing one of my songs, and it's just artificial intelligence, you know. Well, it's kind of scary, but exciting, because it is the future. We'll just have to see where that leads. Consumer Alert! Informed Consumers Act takes effect June the 27th. Businesses in the e-commerce space should mark June 27, 2023 on their calendars. That's the date of a new law. The Informed Consumers Act takes effect. The FTC and the state share law enforcement authority and violations could result in steep civil penalties and in cases brought by the states, damages, restitution, and other compensation. Congress passed the Integrity, Notification, and Fairness in Online Retail Marketplaces for Consumers Act, or the Informed Consumers Act, to add more transparency to online transactions and to deter criminals from acquiring stolen, counterfeit, or unsafe items and selling them through online marketplaces. The Informed Consumers Act put new requirements in place for online marketplaces defined as a person or business that operates a consumer-directed platform that allows third-party sellers to engage in the sale, purchase, payment, storage, shipping, or delivery of a consumer product in the United States. Online marketplaces covered by the law must collect and verify certain financial and identifying information from high-volume third-party sellers, defined as a person or business that meets specific sales thresholds on that platform. What's more, online marketplaces generally must disclose on those sellers' product listing pages or in-order confirmation messages and account transaction histories, the seller's name, address, and contact information. In addition, online marketplaces must suspend high-volume third-party sellers that don't provide the required information and must offer a clear way for consumers to report suspicious conduct. Online marketplaces must have more information about who's selling on their platform. Coverage sellers must promptly comply with those requests for information or risk suspension. And consumers who buy from those sellers will have a place to report questionable activity. So with the June 27th effective date approaching, it's time for online marketplaces to rev up their compliance efforts. The FTC will be watching and expect online marketplaces to have informed Consumers Act measures in place by the effective date. That means people like Amazon, eBay, and others like them. Heat-assisted magnetic recording will expand hard disk drive's capacity to 50 terabyte. Western Digital is somewhat behind its rival Seagate in adopting heat-assisted magnetic recording, that's H-A-M-R, which promises radical improvements to hard disk drive capacities. Still, the company expects hard disk drives that use this recording method to enter mass production by the end of next year. This technology will open doors for drives offering 40 to 50 terabytes capacity in the coming years. Seagate recently said it was months away from introducing its 32 terabyte hard drives featuring heat-assisted magnetic recording technology, with 36 terabyte and 40 terabyte hard disk drives to follow. 
the introduction of 32 terabyte hard drives will put Seagate in a leading position as far as capacity is concerned, as the highest capacity drive that Western Digital has today is its UltraStar DCHC670, which is 26 terabytes, featuring Ultra SMR set of technologies. At a recent conference, Western Digital had said that it expects its heat-assisted magnetic recording hard disk drives to be available by the end of next year. HAMR is a highly complex technology. It requires novel platters capable of enduring intense local heat of approximately 450 degrees centigrade or higher, generated using a laser with an 810 nanometer wavelength and a 20 megawatt power without deforming over time. These platters are expected to be made from glass substrates. Heat-assisted magnetic recording requires a lot of work on the material science as well as physics, but also much work is required in terms of commercialization, meaning be able to manufacture at scale, ensuring the yields are where they need to be, and having a reliable product that can last for several years. So it takes time to get there. All hard disk drive makers have been working on heat-assisted magnetic recording for well over a decade, but only Seagate decided to bet on HAMR boldly. In contrast, Toshiba and Western Digital adopted an energy-assisted perpendicular magnetic recording and microwave-assisted magnetic recording before adopting heat-assisted magnetic recording. It looks like Western Digital is set to stay competitive with Seagate regarding hard disk drive capacities for the foreseeable future. As for heat-assisted magnetic recording, Western Digital expects this recording technology to enable it to build hard disk drives with capacities of around 50 plus terabytes. Webb Telescope will soon get a tiny sidekick to explore alien worlds. NASA selected the $8.5 million CubeSat to aid the Webb Telescope, and together, the space-based duo will observe the cosmos in ultraviolet light. For more than a year, the largest space-based telescope ever built has been observing the far ends of the cosmos with unprecedented detail. The Webb Space Telescope could soon get a little extra help in the form of a miniature satellite the size of a toaster oven and equipped with extremely powerful vision. NASA recently selected the monitoring activity from nearby stars with ultraviolet imaging spectroscopy with the acronym MANTIS to assist Webb by observing the skies in the full range of ultraviolet light. The CubeSat, which cost $8.5 million, is currently being built at the University of Colorado Boulder's Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics, that's with the acronym of LASP, and is scheduled to launch in 2026. The Webb Telescope primarily observes the cosmos in infrared light, which can't be seen by the human eye as it contains wavelengths longer than those of visible light. Ultraviolet light, on the other hand, has wavelengths shorter than those of visible light. We propose Mantis as a kind of ultraviolet sidekick that will follow the James Webb Space Telescope and look wherever it's looking, filling in this important piece of context on the stellar environment in which planets live, said Kevin France, an associate professor at LASP and scientist on the Mantis team. Mantis, named after aggressive shrimp that can see beyond the light spectrum visible to humans, will explore the atmosphere of exoplanets by observing the powerful radiation emitted by stars. Stars often emit highly energetic flares in the form of radiation called extreme ultraviolet, that's EUV light, an event that could be detrimental to planets orbiting them. We want to understand how this flux of UV light coming from stars affect the atmospheres of planets and even their habitability, said Brian Indoor, 
a research scientist at LAPS and principal investigator for the Mantis mission. With its full-range ultraviolet observations, Mantis will explore the conditions that make star systems either habitable or not so welcoming to life. When those emissions hit the top of a planet's atmosphere, it will expand and some of it may escape into space. David Wilson, who leads the mission, science team said in a statement, if you have a high EUV flux, that planet's atmosphere may be quickly eroded away. The last satellite to observe this kind of light was NASA's Extreme Ultraviolet Explorer spacecraft, which operated from 1992 to 2001. For a lot of stars, this is going to be the first time we've seen what they look like in extreme ultraviolet. How to create a safe password. What makes a good one? Most people know a few rules of thumb. It should be as long as possible, contain special characters, and not be a simple word. You should also change it regularly. Choose a different password for each user account and never write it down. In other words, that means commit it to memory. Meeting all these requirements at the same time seems almost impossible. And once you have found a good password, a website may not accept it. Either it is too short, contains an illegal character, or somehow too long. PayPal, for example, does not allow passwords longer than 20 characters. These restrictions make password selection extremely frustrating for most users. For their secure password requirements, many internet service providers rely on 2003 guidelines published by the United States National Institute of Standards and Technology that recommend passwords with as large a mix of special characters, uppercase letters, and lowercase letters as possible. Bill Burr, a former National Institute of Standards and Technology employee, created these guidelines, but has since told the Wall Street Journal that he regrets many of these recommendations. That's because forcing people to change passwords and requiring them to use special characters often lead them to choose easy to remember and therefore insecure passwords that follow a particular scheme or pattern. Thus, the National Institute of Standards and Technology has now revised its guidelines, but not all providers have followed suit. Very often, you are forced to use special characters, numbers, uppercase, and lowercase letters in a password. The FCC is preparing to take a fresh look at internet data caps. It's also looking to see if it can legally take actions against them. The Federal Communications Commission chairperson wants to open a formal notice of inquiry into the impact of internet data caps on consumers. The regulator will also consider taking action to ensure that data caps don't hurt competition or impact access to broadband services. Internet access is no longer nice to have, but need to have for everyone, everywhere, Rosen Warsaw said in a statement. When we need access to the Internet, we're on thinking about how much data it takes to complete a task. We just know it needs to get done. It's time the FCC takes a fresh look at how data caps impact consumers and competition. With a notice of inquiry, the FCC would seek comment to better understand why the use of data caps continues to persist despite increased broadband needs of consumers and providers demonstrated technical ability to offer unlimited data plans, according to the letter. Rosen Warsaw would be unable to take any action on data caps at the moment, though. The FCC currently has just four members, two Democrats and two Republicans. During the COVID-19 pandemic, broadband provider Comcast temporarily removed data caps, but it continues to impose a 1.2 terabyte data cap on certain contracts in some U.S. regions. Charters deal with the FCC to not impose data caps on a spectrum service struck when it acquired Time Warner ended this year, but the company recently said it had no plans to restart data caps when the condition sunsets. Along with the proposed notice of inquiry, 
the FCC has opened a new portal to allow consumers to share how data caps have affected them at FCC.gov forward slash data cap stories. That will help the FCC determine how data caps impact access for everyone, including those with disabilities, low-income consumers, and historically disadvantaged communities, and access to online education, telehealth, and remote work. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we address some of the issues that you might be dealing with in your life that are related to work, or maybe it's things in at work that are related to just life itself. So, I received two questions that are very related to each other. The answer is the same. The answer is not an answer that either Morris or Chuck is going to want to hear. But these are cold, hard reality questions, or the answers are cold, hard reality. So, let's go into the questions. So, Morris asked, I can't ask uh, access a website that I need for work because of a firewall or other security settings. So he can't get onto whatever website he's he wants to get an, uh, onto because there's something popping up. There's something in the way that's not allowing him through. Chuck, his question, very similar. I can't install the software that I need for my work on my computer. Both of these, it used to be that we would talk about something called shadow IT. And this is where people, individuals, would decide for themselves what was best for computing and what they needed on their computers and so forth. Over the years, that's kind of shifted. I'm going to take a slight detour because more people know about this particular item that I'm going to talk about then they know about the rest of it. So I'm going to I'm going to talk about it from one perspective then I'll go into the other perspective. There is this age-old myth that exists. And this myth exists that human resources is there for you. It's there for the little guy. It's there for the employee and it's not. The core responsibility for HR for all employees is to the company. It's to the owner. It's to the stockholders. It's to the people writing the checks. It is not to each other. I know that that comes as a shocker and it comes as, as kind of a rough point for a lot of people. But it's true. It's, it's real. When you go to step out the door to new jobs, you are going to find out that human resources is going to exist to give you your last paycheck and shuffle you off out the door as quickly as they can. Information technology. It exists only for the people who are cutting the checks. It's the exact same thing. They're not there for you. They're there for the company. Now, if information technology is there for the company, they're there for the company in a number of different respects. They're there for the company to protect the company from hackers, from malware, from all of these different things that should not be on the computers. So Chuck, not being able to install that software, that's a protection of the company. Now, they're also there to ensure that the company is maintaining efficiency. A lot of the different IT efforts we do revolve around efficiency. So in Morris's case, he can't access a website that he needs for work. Are you sure you really need that website for work? Are you trying to do an end run around? Are you trying to get to someplace you shouldn't be on the Internet? I had a coworker years ago. Uh, and th actually, this was before I, uh, I was actually even an employee there. I was a contractor. And this guy was going to all, all kinds of places on the Internet, except for where he was supposed to be. 
I won't get into the whole nitty gritty of the details. Let's just say it was a big human resources thing and he should have been sent packing. But that's another story altogether. He was locked down. He was locked down on a number of different levels to the point at one point before he left the company, he was locked down so he could only open up three different applications on his computer. Maybe it was four. And he could only go to five different websites, which we had set up so he could only access those websites. That was all to keep him out of trouble. He was in IT jail. He was in information technology prison. And he hated the warden. Yeah, that was me. He hated that. He came to me many times. It's your fault. I'm, I can't get to this website. I'm like, no, I wasn't the one who found out you went to that website. It was a human resources complaint. I merely solved it per direction by the owner. Every IT department has their own set of acceptable use policies. These policies extend through websites, applications, usage of those applications, usage of those websites, and so much more. They have to do with passwords. They have to do with this, that, or the other thing, where you can go on the network, where you can't go, everything. These policies exist to protect against malware to protect against crashed systems, to protect against unauthorized resource uh, release rather of information. Resource, uh, so look, it, it, it's problems constantly. There are all kinds of different issues that we get into. The, the idea that I'm having to go on out and I'm having to spend time supporting something that's not work-related what, you, you want XYZ software loaded on your system? That's not work-related. Look, if you feel you've got a problem, you can reach out to your IT department. You can talk to them. And if you think you've got a legitimate need, they will talk with you. They will work, work it out with you. And they may solve this for you. They may say no. They may say, look at the policies. But that's just the way it goes. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. The Evolution of Wi-Fi Communications The modern smart home was built on the 2.4 GHz frequency. The 2.4 GHz radio frequency was released by the FCC in 1985 for unlicensed communication use, meaning people didn't have to pay to use it. This made it the obvious choice in 1997 when the first version of the Wi-Fi protocol, 802.11, was released. Everything else in our homes that wanted to communicate wirelessly jumped on the free 2.4 GHz band, from cordless phones and garage door openers to baby monitors. Microwave ovens were already using 2.4 GHz waves for the cooking food with other smart home protocols like Bluetooth, Zigbee, and now Thread, also on the frequency, the 2.4 GHz frequency has gotten very crowded very quickly. Today, 2.4 GHz Wi-Fi is the most popular protocol for smart home devices. It's the least cost to deploy of all the protocols and has the widest compatibility. Everyone who buys a smart home device has a Wi-Fi router that supports 2.4 GHz. 2.4 GHz is better than 5 GHz for the smart home because it provides longer coverage and the signal goes through walls more strongly. While 2.4 GHz is much slower, 5 GHz and 6 GHz, it excels in distance range. The 2.4 GHz spectrum is very narrow, so data doesn't go fast, but because it's a low frequency, it can go a very long way and penetrate wars better than 5 GHz or 6 GHz. This helps connect devices like smart garage door controllers and thermostats they may be further from your Wi-Fi router. 2.4 GHz also doesn't need a mesh network to enable its reach. 
which most other wireless protocols in a smart home do. Not everyone has 5 GHz or 6 GHz infrastructure in their home, and 2.4 is great for low bandwidth devices where you need range. However, being cheap and easy to deploy has made 2.4 GHz Wi-Fi way too popular. As with popularity comes problems. There can be interference and congestion caused by overcrowding on the frequency's narrow spectrum and bad manufacturer's firmware. To begin with, all those devices using 2.4 GHz Wi-Fi and everything else on the same slice of spectrum crowd the frequency. All their incessant chatter makes it hard for any single device to be heard. On a congested network, things move more slowly, leading to reduced performance, latency, and potentially failure. For example, you ask a voice assistant and a smart speaker to turn the lights on, and it happens seconds later, with each bulb turning on one by one rather than all at once. Another issue is if a company hasn't put the work in to optimize its Wi-Fi connectivity, it will end up at the bottom of the queue pile. The 2.4 GHz frequency doesn't have a lot of spectrum to make use of, which becomes a problem. Couple that interference with bad software and a lot of cheap 2.4 devices don't handle failure really well and produce a ton of communication retries to get back on the network, causing interferences, and you end up with an overload of broadcast traffic. With the advent of the 5 GHz, and more recently, 6 GHz Wi-Fi bands, your smart home's Wi-Fi has more room capacity for traffic, specifically more spectrum. As the bands go up, each lanes get wider, with 6 GHz bringing us up to 1200 MHz of spectrum. These new bands open up a swath of fast lanes for the Wi-Fi connected devices in your home. Think of Wi-Fi like a highway, with specific lanes for specific functions. 2.4 GHz is the bike lane for your slow but steady smart home gadgets, and 5 GHz, along with its wider band and faster top bridge, is the main frequency for your high bandwidth devices like security cameras, laptops, tablets, and streaming boxes. 6E routers are expensive, but as more companies adopt 6 GHz and the cost of tech falls, it can start to take offload traffic from 2.4. The solution to the crowded room problem is to move the most active devices away so now you can hear the remaining least active devices better. The simplest thing you can do to help with congestion in your smart home network is to move your high bandwidth devices like security cameras, laptops, and streaming sticks to 5 GHz or even 6 GHz so that your 2.4 GHz gadgets have more room to operate. It should go without saying that to reduce Wi-Fi congestion, you should hardwire anything that you can, such as desktop computers, televisions, streaming sticks, and other stationary bandwidth hogs. Most modern Wi-Fi routers offer band steering that moves dual-band devices to 5 GHz automatically. Mesh router systems also help. If you have multiple access points across your house, your laptop and smartphone can stay connected to 5 or 6 GHz wherever you are and avoid dropping down into that crowded 2.4 GHz band. Where are we today with Wi-Fi communications? If you have a smart home, you want Wi-Fi 6. Netgear, TP-Link, and others have started introducing dedicated smart home Internet of Things networks on their higher-end routers. These keep all your low-bandwidth devices on a secure 2.4 GHz network 
without you having to set up a guest network or splitting bands manually. The band steering technology should make everything work as one network. A new route is also an opportunity to upgrade to Wi-Fi 6. Wi-Fi 6 was specifically designed to improve the performance of a Wi-Fi network when a bunch of devices are connected to it. It's basically a Wi-Fi upgrade for the smart home. If you have a smart home, you want Wi-Fi 6. If you're buying a new router today, Wi-Fi 6 should be a prerequisite. Keep in mind, though, that Wi-Fi 6 is different from 6 GHz. It doesn't come with that extra 6 GHz band. You only get 6 GHz with the aforementioned Wi-Fi 6E. Should all smart home devices just use 5 GHz so we can abandon 2.4? While it makes sense for bigger, more bandwidth-eating smart devices like cameras and smart displays to use 5 GHz, it doesn't make sense to switch smaller, less intensive gadgets to the 5 GHz band. Why move all the bicycles into the faster lanes? Most smart devices send and receive very little data, making the slower data transfer speeds of 2.4 GHz a non-issue. Your door lock, sprinkler system, and net thermostat don't need 5 GHz. They're not streaming video. They can be battery-powered, and they are often far away from your router. 2.4 GHz Wi-Fi is not going away. Additionally, making devices like smart plugs compatible with 5 GHz would require dual-band Wi-Fi chips and more antennas, making these small appliances more expensive and reducing their connection distance. 5 GHz is currently overkill for most smart home devices that don't stream audio or video. Adding 5 GHz will make small, simple smart home gadgets chunkier, costlier, and more complex. But as Wi-Fi matures, 2.4 will not become obsolete. There's just so many devices out there that uses it. Turning it off would not be worth the pain and cost. Is there a better solution? Thread is a newer wireless protocol specifically designed for smart home devices. It also runs on the 2.4 GHz frequency. While 2.4 GHz Wi-Fi may be here to stay, it doesn't mean smart home device makers need to use it. They have other options. Z-Wave, Zigbee, and Thread are all technologies more obviously suited to smart home gadgets, primarily because they use mesh networking. This allows each device to extend connectivity. The more devices you have, the further the network reaches. Z-Wave uses the 900 MHz band and is out of the whole congestion entirely. This is one of the reasons it's found in home security system. It's reliable and not as prone to interference. These mesh protocol options also fix the issue of the massive power drain Wi-Fi has on battery-powered devices. Zigbee can also scale. With one Agara hub capable of handling up to 128 Zigbee devices, standard Z-Wave hubs can handle 232 devices and thread upwards of 250. Over time, we'll see a migration to technologies like thread, but all these protocols require a hub or bridge of some sort to connect to the internet, adding to the cost and complexity, which many manufacturers are trying to avoid as they look to sell you lots of small, smart devices for your home. The 2.4 Wi-Fi chipset is the best for internet of things right now, cost-wise. Thread devices chipset could double or triple cost for us and the price to the consumer will go up. We'll see a migration to technologies like Thread for low bandwidth, high quantity devices such as lights, sensors, and battery operated devices. These devices still run on 2.4 GHz, 
but thread is much more efficient than Wi-Fi from a packet overhead perspective. It doesn't have the overhead of the Wi-Fi negotiation, consuming less airtime with every device. Thread offers better reliability, better network performance, and better range than 2.4 GHz Wi-Fi. Thread-powered devices also don't require a proprietary bridge or hub. Instead, they can use any thread border router to connect to the Internet. A thread border router is a powered device with an Internet connection and a thread radio. It can be anything from a smart speaker, a thermostat, a light fixture, or even be inside your Wi-Fi router. If you have a smart home, you may already have a thread border router, Eero Wi-Fi routers, Apple HomePods, and some Google Nest and Amazon Echo smart speakers are thread border routers. While Thread's infrastructure is beginning to arrive, there are still comparatively few devices that use Thread, and until it's as cheap for manufacturers to build with Thread as it is with 2.4 GHz Wi-Fi, it won't replace Wi-Fi as a dominant smart home connectivity protocol. Why won't some of my smart home gadget connect to 2.4 GHz Wi-Fi? One common frustration with 2.4 GHz Wi-Fi smart home devices is trying to get them connected. Smart plugs, robot vacuums, and bulbs that use the 2.4 GHz Wi-Fi also need to onboard to 2.4 GHz. If the smartphone you're using to get it connected is on a 5 GHz band, the device may not see the 2.4 network and fail to connect. This very real frustration actually has nothing to do with 2.4 GHz Wi-Fi itself and everything to do with the multiple players involved to connect to the network. The fault can be attributed to the router manufacturers and the device manufacturers. It can be a chipset fault and sometimes a fault of the smartphone platform owner. To address this problem, some device manufacturers have started switching to Bluetooth for initial onboarding, but most devices still use Wi-Fi to connect, which, depending on your router, can be problematic. Solutions such as giving your 2.4 GHz and 5 GHz networks different names so devices can see the 2.4 GHz network more easily can present more problems when it comes to controlling those gadgets and updating the firmware. Some newer routers and mesh networking kits don't let you give your Wi-Fi band distinct names, so if it's a problem you've run into, consider switching to a router that does. But be prepared for everything in your home to slow to a crawl while this process plays out. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, last week we were talking about uh, we were talking about uh, tech for outside. Specifically, we were talking about the the the, the uh, this grill, the smart grill. But uh, I asked you, I tasked you, I said, well, what about cooking inside? What, well, what, what tech about, do you yeah, have okay. for that? Multifunction, my friend. Multifunction yes, yes. from Kosori. Two different products. One is a stainless steel 13 quart, that's bigger than usual, air fryer oven combo. Okay. It's about twice the capacity of most air fryers. It has above and below cooking layers, 11 cooking functions, air fry, toast, roast, broil, bake, and there's some more. It's big enough to bake an eight-inch pizza. It has rotisserie okay. in there, so you can cook a whole four-pound chicken. Okay. The modes vary the control over their interior heating sources, which can reach 450 degrees Fahrenheit. And mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. also controls the convection fan speed. I tried to toast a slice of bread, right? You would think this thing does everything, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Toast is one of the fun. It was overdone on the top and barely done on the bottom. So I called support. Yeah. And they said, well, I should have flipped it halfway through. 
Oh wow! I, I, you know, I, I you know, I, I I have a toaster and uh, it's it, it's a toaster oven. It's a it's a very nice toaster oven. I've never had to flip the bread halfway through. I know. Well, sometimes you uh, okay. You have compromises, right? Sure. Uh, this comes with 50 proven recipes uh, and for a lot of your cooking chores, even reheating or keeping warm. You may find it a fast-growing source of reasons to use a Kosori 13-quart air fryer oven okay. instead of that microwave. It's about $140, but Kosori also has a 6-quart pressure cooker that isn't just a pressure cooker. Okay. Very multifunction. It pressure cooks. It cooks rice, steam, sterilizes, slow cooks, sautés, ferments, and sous vide cooking. Oh, sous vide. Okay, nice. Specific call-outs for oatmeal, porridge, stew, broth, bean, grain, meat, or poultry. And you can customize settings for temperature and cooking time. It has a cooking progress bar graph, a lot of safety features like a steam release that faces away from you, and mm -hmm. a spin stopper. The accessories are dishwasher safe. This may look like run-of-a-mill slow cooker, but don't be confused. With most of those, no matter what recipe and instructions you follow, everything comes out like meat soup. This thing can <laughs> make things that those don't, like fajitas and omelets and pork chops and salmon. The Gosori six-quart pressure cooker is about 90 bucks, but there is something that came out of considering both of those, and that is foil. Tin foils, paper wraps. I, uh, I use those for making hats. Uh, tin foil, yes. Well, they uh, keep uh, the radio uh, yeah, waves from Mars uh, away uh, from yeah, your yeah, brain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I have a gas grill, an oven, a microwave, a superheated steam oven, a multi-mode convection air fryer, a multi-mode pressure cooker, and I'm mm -hmm. probably forgetting something. Yeah. So I asked the Reynolds rep guys to tell me which of their products I can use in which cookers. Okay. It, they got me samples of a whole bunch of different variations and sent some info. I learned that microwaved frozen pancakes, everybody okay. does those, right? Okay. Come out better when I wrap them in parchment paper, which helps retain moisture in the food. Okay. Parchment paper, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Get a roll. Outside the microwave, parchment paper lets meat and veggies brown and crisp while still retaining moist flavors. You can use that in ovens, no hotter than 425. You got a flame going on. <laughs> it's very that whole cool paper making, thing comes into play yeah. there. Yeah, it's very cool for making cookies, but not. Don't use it on the grill or in open flames. Don't use it in toaster ovens. Not under the broiler and not in halogen light ovens. Okay. Now Reynolds also makes butcher paper, which is great for smoking meat at temperatures that never hit 300. There, okay. It's also good in the microwave, but never in toaster ovens or under a broiler and how, you know, that kind of thing. Reynolds nonstick aluminum foil is good to 650 degrees. That's the nonstick. Good for most grills, pizza ovens. They recommend preheating the grill or oven, then placing the foil in with the duller nonstick side up. Placing food onto the foil. Oh, okay, so the dull side is nonstick. So the right. shiny side is? Normal foil. Nor okay. All right. Right. Now, the pure normal foil it, it can go to 650 degrees. And okay. uh, that's the melting point of aluminum. Uh, I'm sorry. Melting point of aluminum is 1200 Fahrenheit. So with the nonstick, you can go to 600 and some. You don't okay. want to go much above five. And 1,200 will melt, uh, the, not that your oven will hit it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah your uh, high-end wood-fired pizza ovens do hit like 800 and 900. But, uh, yeah, they're they're flash-burning, uh, flash yeah. those pizzas. Right. Well, for, for anything really hot, the only thing I'd try is their heavy-duty foil. And for slow cookers, they have slow cooker liners. Oh, do all they? Told, okay. You know, all told, uh, <laughs> I talk to them, and it's better to know the limits than to offer curses and be foiled again. <laughs> so, I so that last item though that that was something I was not aware of the slow cooker liner. I wasn't either, but you know that's why I make these phone calls. Yeah, you know I I appreciate you know there's a lot of research that you that you put into a lot of these different things. It's not like you just show up and go, oh, hey, I got something in and and all of that. It's it's the background. You start thinking about everything that could go wrong, and uh, sometimes I, it does. My mama didn't raise no press release parrots. 
<laughs> Very true. That's the voice of Marty Winston. This, this is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect, Thursday, July the 6th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is wpcug.org. The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, July the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, call 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, July the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, July 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. And just to let everyone know, I'm aware that there is an issue with the website of the Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey, and they're working on recovering and restoring it to operation. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.